human body on average is made up of 60% water. The human body can survive weeks without food, but only a few days without water. Even if you haven't gone days without water, you've probably experienced the sensation of being thirsty and the satisfaction that comes when you get a big glass of water. Many in the world lack access to clean drinking water, and in some ways, the fact that we have access provides a standard of living that has come to define what it means to be first world. We who have lived all our lives in this condition are not eager to see it go away. Access to clean water and the body's dependency on it provides an apt teaching moment for Jesus when he encounters a Samaritan woman at a well. He uses his own thirst to draw her into a conversation that leads him to offer her something much better than water. As we read in our confession of sin from the prophet Jeremiah, he provides an apt description of our tendency. We have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters, by hewing out for ourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. And we noticed last week that a refusal to receive the testimony of Jesus was to disobey God by seeking to find life outside of him. Our text today illustrates in contrast with Nicodemus that it is not just the religious elite who look for life in the wrong places. But Jesus intentionally goes through Samaria to meet this specific woman to offer her living water which is true life. And this conversation, which we will unfold over the next few weeks, sheds light on the methods that Jesus uses in evangelism and the nature of his ministry and his willingness to overcome barriers to seek and to save the lost. And, of course, all for the purpose of forming for himself a new people, who will worship God in spirit and in truth. And those people who he has formed by his spirit, he equips to go out and do the same thing, to offer the same living waters that he offers to this woman at the well. And only Jesus, only Jesus can provide eternal life. Therefore, we must come to him and receive it by faith. So this morning, as you're able, please stand with me. As we read together from the gospel according to John, we'll be in chapter 1, reading from verses 1 through 15, which is also printed for you in your bulletin. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea. And departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. 
Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we come this morning in the name of your Son and by your Spirit, we know that we are in your very presence. And as we do, seeking as we are the living waters of life, of eternal life that well up within us through your Spirit, come, Father, and open our hearts to see the wonders of your word laid out for us here today so that we may not seek waters in any other place but in you. For we pray this in the name of your Son. And amen. Amen. You may be seated. Despite having just heard John the Baptist's great confession that Jesus must increase while he decreases, we see a determined Jesus not willing to countenance this kind of competition. As soon as he heard banter that he was baptizing more than John, he leaves the cultural center to head up north to Galilee. Jerusalem is the center of Israel and its uh, religious culture and he moves from doing ministry there to the outskirts to Galilee and John is careful to distinguish the fact that it was Jesus's disciples who were doing the baptizing and you might wonder why is that important well just imagine later on in the church's history if you were able to say that you were baptized by Jesus would you not make your own exclusive club for those who have been baptized by Jesus I would. I would be in that club, and I would be the chairman of it, right? And so, and that's what Paul faced in 1 Corinthians, right? He had all these super apostles. And what does he do? He says, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you, except for maybe this guy and that guy. I can't remember. But he, he wanted to focus on the preaching of the gospel because we are prone to major on minor things. And as church history bore out, it's not who baptized you that matters, is it? It's the action of the Spirit and the washing away of your sins that is important and not the minister who administers the baptism. And the route north would take Jesus right through Samaria, which is a trip Jews were reluctant to make. And when compelled, they made their way as quick as possible. In fact, they did not stop to eat. So this is kind of strange. They would bring their own food, or they would just go as fast as they could to get through there. Some very scrupulous ones would go around. It wasn't common, but it did happen because they didn't want to pass through Samaria. But I want you to notice something from verse 4. It's a phrase that doesn't really stick out in English much, but Jesus had 
to pass through Samaria. And this is not just a geographical note. This is a divine imperative. It was absolutely necessary that Jesus pass through Samaria. And like everything else that we encounter in the Gospels that Jesus does, it means that this encounter with the Samaritan woman is on purpose. He doesn't just happen or stumble into chance encounters like we do. He goes looking for them. We would expect nothing less from the one whose sole mission is to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19.10 And if you really drill down, you could say that that is true of you as well. Jesus had sought you. He specifically came and he found you so that he could save you. I know that is my own testimony. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father apart from him. John 14, 6. Just because he's not bodily present here on earth, the Son is still carrying out his mission to find sinners and answer their hard questions and offer him their, his life in exchange for their sin. And he, have, he does this by his Spirit through the preaching of the Word, but he also does it through our personal evangelism of others. If the same Spirit lives in you, then he also leads you to divine appointments to bear witness to Jesus. Many of you, I am sure, have felt that kind of divine compulsion, driving you to talk to someone about Jesus. You have experienced the pull of the Spirit, stirring your heart to reach out and share the gospel. And has passed into something of Christian cliche, but it is true that we are the, the body of Christ as his hands and his feet. We carry in these jars of clay the gospel treasures of death and life of Jesus. Let me give you two encouragements and then two warnings that we see from this compulsion that drives Christ to go to Samaria. First, to be receptive to the Spirit's promptings It presupposes that you're walking in step with the Spirit. Cultivating communion with God is the surest way to be in tune with His promptings. When you grow in the fruit of the Spirit, your focus and your attention are on God. Like a dog that looks to its master for direction, our eyes are fixed on God for our direction. And this connection is severed when you walk according to the flesh. For then our preoccupation shifts and our focus is on ourselves and the sin that has got our attention off of God. And second, and flowing out from our communion with God will be an active dependence on Him in prayer to open your eyes to this kind of divine appointments. Praying, God, lead me into places and conversations that will allow me to share my faith. God is the one who provides these kinds of encounters, so we should be praying that he would do so more and more. I'm always astounded by this, right? We pray this prayer. God is faithful to answer it. I was praying this kind of prayer a few, uh, a couple months ago, right there in my office, and then not 10 minutes after that, I received a phone call, and someone asked me, did I accept confession? meaning in, in the terms of a Roman Catholic. And I said, well, maybe not like you're thinking, but sure, come on in. And so he came in, he brought his wife, and he was 
uh, in the process of trying to convince her that he had reformed himself from his sins. And he wanted to do that in the presence of somebody who could corroborate his testimony. But nevertheless, the reason why he came did not matter. God brought him right to my door so that I could offer to him the gospel, right? And so that I could hear his sins and I could pronounce that the good news that in Christ our sins are forgiven and we are by his spirit transformed into his likeness. And I just prayed God would give me those kind of encounters and there it was. Pray those kinds of prayers and God will respond. I promise you that. But there is a a warning here as well. Imagine if Jesus had resisted this necessity of going through Samaria and instead went around. Some Jews did go around. It was a, a more difficult journey. It was a little bit more dangerous. And it, of course, took a lot more time. But if they were over-scrupulous and they hated the Samaritans enough, they would do that. Not only would this woman not have encountered Jesus, but her whole village. To translate that, we need to be cautious not to isolate ourselves off in Christian ghettos. Sometimes in our call to be counterculture, we end up isolated more and more from any contact with the world. And it certainly is a challenge to be in the world, but not of the world. To not allow the world to squeeze us into its mold, influencing our worldview while we maintain a faithful presence here in the world. But praying that God would bring you into contact with those who need Jesus, it presupposes that you will come in contact with people who need Jesus. You can't pray that prayer if you have no expectation of ever coming in contact with somebody who might need the remedy that you offer. I, 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 I'm preaching to myself here, right? I, I, I work in a church. I live in a Christian home. My children go to a Christian school. If I'm not careful, I will be surrounded by Christians all the time. And that's wonderful. That's great. We need the communion of saints. But we also need to be a faithful presence in the world. We need to cultivate relationship with unbelievers or look for opportunities where we can come in contact with them, with people who are not believers. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not advocating that you turn your children into missionaries and send them to the public schools. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you need to get rid of all your Christian friends and only have secular friends. That's not what I'm saying either. I'm saying be intentional about cultivating relationships with people who don't know Jesus because you do and you can offer that to them. Secondly, don't pit good theology against our practical calling. God is sovereign even down to who and when people are called through the gospel to come to him. That is true. But at the same time, God has ordained to work through you, through your witness, through your prayers. God's purposes are somehow mysteriously entwined with you. That's scary to me. I don't trust myself, but God does somehow. He has designed it so that the message of the gospel goes through broken tools. I carry about this message of the gospel in jars of clay. 
Don't pit God's sovereignty against your responsibility to evangelize. God will call whom he will call, and he'll use you to do it. And that means he uses the preaching of the gospel. He uses your small groups. He uses your conversations to draw people to himself. We don't want to pit God's sovereignty against our own responsibility to be aware of these kinds of divine appointments. But Jesus, compelled as he was to go through Samaria, he stops at a well. So many important events happened at wells. Palestine being a semi-arid climate, wells are absolutely essential for the survival of a community. You cannot build a city or a community apart from where there's water. We sort of take this for granted because we have modern plumbing. But you, you didn't have that then. You, you needed the well. Uh, you, you needed that access to water. Wells were fought over. They were gifted in dowries. But more importantly, they were a place to find a wife. Many of the patriarchs found their wives at, at wells. Abraham sends his servant to go and find a wife for his son Isaac from the land of Haran. He goes all the way back there and he prays to the Lord. He says, just bring the right woman out to the well. She gives me a drink of water. That's got to be the one. And sure enough, that's Rebecca of the same family. And then the next generation, Jacob fleeing from Esau, he goes and does the same thing. And Rachel comes out to him and they meet at the well. So in a way, Jesus is sitting down at the well, tired from his journey, also meets his future bride, right? Because all those who have place their faith in Jesus Christ, who have been brought into him, are part of his body, the bride of Christ, the church. So in a sense, Jesus is meeting his own bride. So Jesus is at a well, he's weary from his journey, and a woman comes in the middle of the day to draw water, a Samaritan. This is kind of a three strikes and you're out type of situation. She is a woman, strike one, Common first century Jewish prayer, thank God that you did not make me a woman. Amen. That's what a Jewish male would pray. Right? It was not that they, well, it might have been that they looked down on women, but it was just that women had a much more difficult role in their culture than men did. And so strike one, she's a woman. Secondly, she's a Samaritan. Strike two, Samaritans were half-breeds. They're not true Israelites. They were Uh, resettled with the Assyrians, and they assimilated with their culture. They worshipped many different gods. They were syncretists. And at this point, they are looked down upon. The third strike has to do with the fact that she is coming to draw water at the well at noon. If you notice, it said at the sixth hour, which is at around noon. Typically, women came early in the morning or late in the evening to avoid the heat of the day. Plus, they almost always went in groups with other women for protection. Not only is this woman alone, but she has come at the time of day when she is not likely to run into anyone else, desiring most likely to keep the gossip mills to a minimum and to avoid the salacious comments about her tawdry personal life. As Jesus makes clear later in the conversation, she has a less than stellar reputation with men. For she has had five husbands, not including her current live-in boyfriend. 
These three strikes would have kept most rabbis from speaking with her, let alone asking her for a drink of water. But not Jesus. Most would be unwilling to sully their reputation and to risk ritual, if not moral, uncleanness. The point is that no serious rabbi would ever be caught dead in this situation, let alone seek it out, let alone ask this sexually impure, ethnically unclean, inferior sex for a drink of water. But Jesus, Jesus has come for the very purpose to seek and to save the lost. And you see, unlike everyone else, purity works different for Jesus. When you are clean and you touch something dirty, what happens? You get dirty. You don't make the dirty thing clean. I'm sorry to say that. And if you're dirty and you touch someone clean, they don't make you clean. You make them dirty. But Jesus isn't like that. He touches lepers and they become clean, but he doesn't become unclean. This woman asks, how can you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink? Because she does not know that far from being defiled by what is unclean, Jesus actually sanctifies what he touches. What a striking picture of the mission of Jesus. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He came to make clean that which was marred and filthy in sin. He came to take our infirmities upon himself and to suffer the full weight of their penalty so that we could go free, possessing a righteousness not our own. No doubt if we went around the room, we could recount the many reasons stacked against us why we should not have received the kind of treatment we have from Jesus. All the barriers that could have kept Jesus from us and his righteousness But he is not dissuaded by those barriers. What greater barrier is there than the chasm that exists between God and man? And Jesus came and he took on flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Jesus crosses barriers. They don't keep us from Jesus. They don't keep him from us. It's not that Jesus did this so that He could bring salvation in the aggregate, like just the possibility. But for a specific woman, he came to this specific Samaritan woman with all her past sins, crossing all these barriers to offer her his life. If he cares that much for one Samaritan woman, why do you doubt that he cares that much for you? Why do you not trust that he has moved heaven and earth to save you? And if you believe that to be true, why are you not compelled to offer that good news to others? If you have experienced the earth-shattering news that God came and saved you, why would you not want to go out and tell others about that? For We too have barriers that we're unwilling to cross when it comes to offer the gospel. We may be dismissive of that fact, but deep down we know that it's true. We have just as much aversion to that blasted Democrat. I mean, for goodness sake, they support abortion. Maybe it's more specific. You have trouble just loving your neighbor. 
I mean, their dog barks all day long, and I want to kill the little dog. And besides that, it looks like she goes to Mass, but she doesn't even seem to be married to the man who comes around lately. Besides, her culture is so different. She probably wouldn't fit in anyway. On and on, we make excuses. While Christ is busy tearing down every barrier to offer us salvation, we, in the meantime, are erecting new barriers to keep the gospel from going to them. How counterintuitive does that sound? It's harsh when you put it like that, but what else is it when we don't have a sense of urgency that compels us to join Jesus in seeking out the lost? Jesus saw all her sins and intimately knew all the secrets of her heart. And this did not keep him from asking her for a drink of water. But like every other person apart from Christ who has walked this earth, we share the same nature. What should motivate us most to cross barriers for the gospel is our shared humanity. We are all of us made in his image. And that provides the common ground needed to see people differently. The Nigerian author Chimamanda Adichie, she gave a TED talk a few years ago on the danger of the single story. And in that talk, she recounts a, a childhood story. She, they were upper middle class Nigerian family that had house servants. Uh, one year, they got a new houseboy. And all her mother told her of this boy is that he was poor. She would be reminded to eat her food because this boy did not have food like her to eat. Uh, Just so you know, African mothers use that line too to get their children to eat their food. They're starving kids in Africa. They use that in Nigeria too. But one day, her mother took her to the village where the boy and his family lived. And she saw the beautiful baskets the boy's mother had handcrafted. Only then did she realize that this boy and his family were not just poor. There were other things that could describe them. They were industrious. They worked hard. They were craftsmen. They put everything into their work. She then realized that his story was much more complex than just being poor. She calls this the danger of a single story. You see, the Samaritan woman at the well is characterized by a single story, one that has so ostracized her from the community that she goes pensively to the well at midday just to avoid others. But it's there that Jesus meets her, crossing every barrier she and others had created that should have prevented their interaction. Not troubled in the least, Jesus asks her for water, a question designed to lead her to a relationship with him. Jesus crosses barriers. And he does so so that he can offer living water. As he often does, Jesus uses his question as a launching point into a discussion that will end with him offering her something she didn't even know she was looking for. But it will leave her more satisfied than she could ever imagine. Jesus tells her four things that become foundational for their whole conversation. In verse 10, he says, If you knew what I had to offer and who I am, you would ask me and I would give you eternal life. 
See, the gift of God is the gift of His Son, who is light and life, and belief in Him results in eternal life. Asking Him for this life is is belief exhaling. It's you crying out in faith. That's what asking Jesus for living waters is. And it will satisfy her. It will leave her never thirsty again like nothing and no one ever could. One commentator said, quote, This thirst is not for natural water, but for God. For eternal life in the presence of God. And the thirst is met not by removing this aching desire, but by pouring out the Spirit. Indeed, this water will become in Him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Clearly, a reference to the Spirit who alone gives life. At first, she is not sure what to make of this. She gets defensive, wondering if this is just another way of him telling her that he is superior to her. Does he have some kind of superior superior Jewish wells? Well, besides, he doesn't even have anything to draw the water with. And doesn't isn't this Jacob's well? I mean, if it was good enough for the patriarch, it's got to be good enough for me. Even though I'm a Samaritan, it's the same patriarch. And he drank from it. He fed his livestock with it. But the reality is, yes, he is greater. And the water he will give her will satisfy her deepest longings. Her longings for God. To be reconciled to him. To be at peace with him. She may not have even known that that's what she was longing for. And we often don't. But Jesus does. He knows that beneath all our desires that we we try to satisfy through consuming, through relationships, through sex, what we are really looking for is God. It is Him that Jesus came to bring us back into fellowship with, to give us eternal life in His presence. What Jesus offers cannot be found in anything else, but that doesn't mean that we don't try. We have all become experts at what the country song calls looking for love in all the wrong places, right? And we've done it. We've tried all kinds of manner of things to fill up that void in us, but it leaks out just as fast as we put it in. We seek satisfaction in things designed not to offer that kind of satisfaction, at least not the kind of satisfaction we so desperately want. I I read this quote from C.S. Lewis a couple weeks ago. Every preference of a small good to a great or a partial good to a total good involves the loss of the small or partial good for which the sacrifice is made. Apparently, the world is made that way. You can't get second things by putting them first. You get second things only by putting first things first. End quote. C.S. Lewis said that in God in the Dock. Jesus offers eternal life, which is to know God and His Son, Jesus Christ. In John 17, 3, it's only when you are offered that life and received it by faith that you can find satisfaction in the rest of God's gifts. But the Samaritan woman proves that she does not quite get it, at least yet. She thinks that if she can access this living water, she won't be thirsty again. Thus, she will never have to come to the well again. 
She thinks if he gives her this water, all her temporary problems will disappear. The shame of visiting the well midday. The possibility that someone will see her and her delicate place within the community will no longer be a problem. But she's still thinking in terms of her felt needs. Jesus will have to do more work on her before she begins to really understand what he is offering her. But of course, this temptation remains for the church today. Eternal life gets reframed as your best life now or the offer of any number of good things, but not ultimate things. The church and her ministers have been busy churning out a self-help gospel that promises to remedy all of our therapeutic self-actualizing needs. But the real goal behind wanting to be integrated fully functioning person is often more superficial. Why do you want to self-actualize so that I can get recognition at work or that new promotion so I can dominate the competition so I can be more self-sufficient and not dependent on a community to make more money or have a better relationships. The world offers a seeming unending list of benefits if you can somehow attain self-actualization. The truth is Christ did come to make you whole. Those possessed by demons were set free and those racked with sickness were sometimes healed. And the result of the new birth is personal transformation. But the difference lies in the goal of that transformation and the means used to accomplish it. The goal is not self-actualization, but spirit-actualization. The process of becoming who God made you to be is not had by looking into yourself and being true to what you find. The self-love movement is idolatry. And doing that will only lead to despair. Spirit actualization, scripturally known as your sanctification, is the process whereby the Spirit conforms you to be like Christ. To be the most fully alive human, actualized, and glorifying God is to be more like Christ. But the goal of self-actualization is often just comfort and ease, affluence, or the ability to avoid suffering. But the call of Christians is to follow Christ. And before glory, that path leads through suffering. Matthew 10, 38 Jesus said, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The paradox of spirit actualization is that only in dying will you truly live. The resources to do that and the goal you are aiming at are not found within, but they're found in Jesus Christ. He is your life And he offers you his spirit so that you will never thirst again. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, you have invited us to come and draw water from the wells of salvation without pay. We come now thirsting for you, longing to be satisfied in you. For we know that we as leaky vessels have hewed out for ourselves cisterns that cannot contain water that will ever satisfy. 
But you who have sought the lost, who have come in the flesh to take on our sins, have crossed every barrier to offer us that life. We accept it, Father, and we ask for your spirit that it may well up within us a spring that never runs dry. For we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. And amen. Saints, before we come,